Having said that, now let's pick up, if we can, with Mark chapter 10, uh, verses 1 through 5 today. We're dealing with Mark chapter 10, verses 1 to 12, and continuing this episode about Jesus' teaching on marriage. Mark chapter 10. Jesus then left that place and went into the region of Judea and across the Jordan. Again, crowds of people came to him, and as was his custom, he taught them. Some Pharisees came and tested him by asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? What did Moses command you, he replied. They said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. It was because of your, it was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you this law, Jesus replied. Pause right there. Let's just pause right there for the time being. Because of the hardness of your hearts, Moses wrote you this law, Jesus replies to them. That isn't all he says, but that's where he starts. So according to verse 2, the opportunity came for Jesus to teach on marriage and family. But it wasn't a positive encounter because of the motives of the people asking him the questions. The dialogue begins here with a question from Jesus' adversaries, the Pharisees. And then the dialogue continues with a counter question from Jesus, which leads to his confronting and correcting them And finally, his teaching of the disciples. We find that in the final two verses of this episode, uh, verses 11 and 12. Verse 2 says, some Pharisees came and tested him by asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Hmm. The question is not coming from those eager to learn truth from Jesus, as we know. This is is a question motivated by hostility on the part of these Pharisees. Let us remember that the Pharisees are religious leaders who vehemently opposed Jesus in every way. Their question was ill-motivated. This was not a sincere theological question. The scripture tells us that they were testing Jesus in an attempt to trap him. If they were not seeking to learn from Jesus, then why did they ask him about this? Why were they trying to trap him? Well, their purpose was to accuse him of violating the law of Moses, which would have been considered a crime against God and would have landed Jesus in serious trouble with the Jewish authorities. In addition to this, they were attempting to get Jesus into trouble with King Herod over the issue of Herod's illegitimate marriage to Herodias. Now, let us remember that according to Mark chapter 6, verses 17 and 18, King Herod had jailed and executed John the Baptist because he confronted Herod about having unlawfully married Herodias after stealing her from his own brother Philip. So it appears that the Pharisees were trying to get Jesus into trouble with Herod and his wife Herodias so that Jesus might suffer the same fate as that of John the Baptist. In any case, instead of receiving Jesus, the Pharisees were attempting to get rid of Jesus because they considered him to be a threat to their establishment and a threat to their influence with the people. However, Jesus had not come to threaten their establishment. He came to save them from their sin. Not only to save them from their sins, of course, but also to save them from themselves. But they completely rejected Jesus and the reason God said it. They were supposed to be the ones 
who were best positioned to know when the Messiah would come. But instead, they completely misunderstood Jesus and completely misunderstood that Jesus was and is their Messiah. He not only was their Messiah, he is their Messiah and ours too. So instead of embracing him, they unwittingly became enemies of God. Now, they don't think they're enemies of God. They don't see themselves that way at all. In fact, they have quite the opposite concept of themselves. But as scripture unfolds here, it reveals and shows us they were enemies of God, even though they knew the Bible, even though they worshiped. As a matter of fact, if you were a Pharisee, knowing the Bible uh, for a Pharisee in the first century is far more significant than what we understand about knowing the Bible today. In that day, they did not have chapters and verses in the scripture, but they knew where every word was placed in the Bible. They could recite whole portions and sections of scripture. They knew exactly where to find everything that was written in at least the 39 books of the Old Testament that make up our Bible. You know, that's two-thirds of our Bible, the Old Testament, 39 books. There are 27 New Testament books, but 39 Old Testament books, and two-thirds of the Bible taken up by Old Testament scripture, you see. Oh, they knew it. They knew it beyond what most of, and many of us would even understand uh, today. And yet, they unwittingly become enemies of God. Their question, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Now, over in Matthew chapter 19, verse 3, Matthew 19, 3 gives us a a little more complete version of this question in Matthew's gospel. It, It goes like this. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Notice the part of this question that is omitted uh, here in Mark chapter 10, verse 2, but included in Matthew chapter 19, verse 3 at the very end. For any and every reason? This phrase reveals that Jesus' opponents adopted a very liberal interpretation of the grounds for divorce what we would call a very liberal interpretation of the grounds for divorce. They believed that a man could divorce his wife for any reason whatsoever. Instead of asking about the biblical teaching on marriage, they're asking about divorce and the dissolution of marriage. They were more interested in divorce than in the sanctity and meaningfulness of marriage. You know, they are an example of people who ask questions, but who are not being honest about why they're asking. (laughs) Excuse me. They were questioning Jesus in order to cause controversy. They wanted to start trouble so that they could get Jesus into trouble. Now, you know, listen, (laughs) have you ever, by the way, just, just push the pause button for a second. But have you ever had to deal with somebody who asks you questions, especially in front of other people, you know, in order to embarrass you? (laughs) You know, in order to try to make you look bad? (laughs) You know. Now, in this case, they're not only trying to make Jesus look bad, they're trying to destroy Jesus, okay? Uh, This is serious, and it is life-threatening. Jesus was not fooled by their attempts to entrap him. Notice in verse 3, you have your Bibles. Notice in verse 3 how Jesus wisely responded to their question with a counter-question. 
What did Moses command you? Jesus was not taken aback by this controversial subject. He answers their question with a more important counter-question that turns the conversation in the direction of what the Word of God says about marriage, divorce, and remarriage. Jesus directs them to Scripture instead of debating their ill-motivated question. Now pay attention, church. By the way, in a similar manner, in Matthew chapter 4, Satan approached Jesus in order to tempt him and there Jesus also responded to temptation by turning to the word of God. Here in verse 3, he takes them to the word of God by asking, what did Moses command you? That's a reference to the word of God, to scripture. In other words, what does the word of God say? What does the Bible say about this matter? Turning to scripture was Jesus' approach to dealing with temptation, but not only to dealing with temptation as they are trying to tempt him to say something that would get him into trouble, but turning the scripture was Jesus' approach, not only to deal with temptation, but to deal with sensitive issues and to deal with difficult people. You know, let us learn wisdom from how Jesus handled this situation. Do you turn to the Bible as God's word when there are issues in your marriage? Or if you're not married, other relationships, married or not, other relationships, do you turn to the word of God when there are issues that come up in your relationships? Do you ask, what does the scripture command us to do? Or what does the word of God say about this? You know, couples who sit down together and learn what the Bible teaches about whatever issues they face in marriage, this is crucial for a holy and healthy marriage, a holy and healthy Christian marriage, you see. So let us learn to turn to the scriptures for guidance because God's word is sufficient for everything we need, everything that we need uh, to help us with issues of marriage, divorce, remarriage, or whatever the relationship may be. God's word has guidance, has truth for us, will give us the wisdom to navigate and deal with whatever relational issues we have to face. So after Jesus answers his critics' question about by pointing them to Scripture, what is their response to Jesus? What is their response to his question, what did Moses command you? Well, according to verse 4, they said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. Where did Moses write this in Scripture? Hmm. <laughs> now, according to Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 to 4, this is what Moses wrote. If a man marries a woman <clears throat> who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her, and sends her from his house. And if after she leaves his house, she becomes the wife of another man, and her second husband dislikes her and writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her, and sends her from his house, or if he dies... Then her first husband, who divorced her, is not allowed to marry her again after she has been defiled. That would be detestable in the eyes of the Lord. Do not bring sin upon the land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. That's what Moses wrote in Deuteronomy chapter 24. And this is what 
the Pharisees are referring to in their answer to Jesus. Ah, stay with me now, saints. A close and careful reading of Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 to 4, shows that Moses was regulating divorce instead of giving explicit permission to divorce. What Moses wrote reveals here that divorce was already a rampant reality in ancient Israel. It could be argued now that, you know, that, that permission was implicit in Moses' regulation of divorce, but there does not appear to be any explicit permission to divorce. Here in Deuteronomy chapter 24, Moses was forced to make a concession in the law because men were determined to divorce their wives regardless. So he had to put parameters on divorce and remarriage in order to protect the women who were often victimized by the men. You see, in ancient Israel, only the male, only the husband, could legally initiate a divorce proceeding. Now, look, I understand how many of y'all might feel about hearing this and how many of y'all might feel about this now. This was then. <laughs> but only the men were able legally to initiate a proceeding of divorce. And by the time of Jesus, there had developed two prevailing schools of thought on exactly what Moses meant here in Deuteronomy 24.1, what he meant by the phrase, if he finds something indecent about her. Here were the two prevailing schools of thought on what Moses meant by that statement in Deuteronomy 24.1. First, a more conservative opinion was that the indecency referred to in Deuteronomy 24.1 meant some form of sexual immorality or adultery. That's the more conservative opinion. Or number two, the more liberal opinion was that the term indecency or that he found something indecent in her referred to practically anything the husband did not like about the wife. So, so the Pharisees' question to Jesus was about what grounds a husband could initiate divorce proceedings against his wife. Remembering now that the wife could not legally initiate divorce proceedings against the husband. The Pharisees, along with the religious leaders, took the more liberal opinion that a man could divorce his wife for any and every reason. Of course they would take the more liberal interpretation in this case because it allowed the husband to treat the wife any old way he wanted to treat her. For example, according to the more liberal interpretation of this, as worked out in Jewish literature, a husband could divorce his wife if she did not make satisfactory meals for him. I mean, she cooked something, <laughs> and he didn't like it. Now, how about that? Yeah, bro. <laughs> he didn't like it. Listen, I'm not making this up. I'm not making this up. Uh, you, find this in, you find this in ancient Jewish literature. Or he could divorce his wife, okay, if he found another woman more beautiful that he wanted instead of his wife. This is what's behind their question to Jesus. When you understand that this is what's behind their question, then you understand how sinister the question is to begin with. I mean, listen, this is what this is what John the Baptist had accused Herod of. 
You took your brother Philip's wife. That's wrong. You can't do that. That is illegal. It's unlawful. You have no right to her. <laughs> uh, and John confronted King Herod about it. Now, Herodias, his wife, decided that she would take her fury out on John the Baptist. And remember, we went through the story of what happened to John the Baptist, his martyrdom, back in Mark chapter 6. You remember that she had her daughter dance before the king at a great banquet, and the king, in his folly, promised the girl up to half his kingdom, and the girl didn't know what to ask for, so she goes to her mother, what do I ask him for? And she said, for the head of John the Baptist on a plate. And the king was forced to keep his oath, so he had John executed in prison. By the way, the place where John was in prison is the same vicinity where Jesus is right now in this story. So you see what I mean when I say they were probably also trying to get Jesus with this question, trying to get Jesus in trouble with Herod. Because if Herod and Herodias, his wife, got wind of something Jesus said about them, then she would surely do or try to do to Jesus what she had already done to John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin. Hmm. Jesus corrects them and their erroneous thinking in Matthew chapter 19, verse 8, when he says, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not this way. And in our text here today, Mark chapter 10, verse 5, Jesus is recorded as having said it this way. It was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you this law. Hmm. Okay. Now, this is one of the most important insights about what actually causes marriages to fail. The hardening of the heart. By answering them, as Jesus did, he is revealing what is usually at the crux of the failure of virtually every marriage, the hardening of the heart. Jesus gets to the heart of the divorce problem and why so many marriages go wrong. It's because of the hardening of the human heart. Okay, so stay with me. I know, we listen, we're going deep, and when otherwise would you have an opportunity to go deep? Let's go deep while we can and while God gives us time. So the original Greek word here, um, it's pronounced, by the way, um, sclerocardia. It is a compound word consisting of the Greek words scleros, from which we get our English term Sclerosis, the English medical term, sclerosis, hardness, and the word cardia, heart. So together meaning hardness of heart or hard-heartedness. Now obviously heart is being used here as a metaphor for the inner person. Even in Moses' day, the problem was so prevalent that Moses was forced to make a concession in the law. In Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 to 4, Moses was essentially telling the men that if they were determined to divorce their wives over something indecent about her, then they could not come back later and remarry the wives they had divorced. So Moses was conceding the reality of divorce and putting moral parameters on remarriage in Deuteronomy chapter 24. See how huge, how this was such a huge problem, even for Moses, the great lawgiver of ancient Israel. 
This was a huge problem that even Moses struggled to get a handle on. The same Moses before whom countless people died at the hands of God because of their disobedience. But in reality here, divorce was never part of God's will. Going all the way back to creation. <laughs> now stay with me now. Don't go to sleep and don't run away. This is God's word. And as I told you at the beginning, saints, it doesn't matter what your status is, whether you're married, divorced, remarried, single, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. We're here to love you, but we can only love you with the truth. You need to know the truth so that your soul can be healed. Because, listen, God loves you. God loves us, but he loves us with the truth. There's no such thing as love apart from truth, by the way. And sometimes the truth can, can be hard and can be difficult and painful for us to... But listen, this is the path to healing. Walk with me in it. The center of the problem of divorce and remarriage, the center of the problem is the sinful human heart. But the gospel of Christ is the remedy for this huge problem if we submit to the teachings of Jesus. True Christian discipleship is the remedy for the hardening of the human heart. Discipleship calls us to, to, it calls us to humble our hearts, not harden our hearts. And in marriage, listen, humility brings blessing to the relationship. Hardening only brings curse upon the relationship in the form of hurt, retaliation, pain, misery, dysfunction, and alienation. And there is nothing more painful and more deeply painful than marital misery. Nothing weighs more on a person's heart than marital misery, than things falling apart or people falling apart or the relationship falling apart and you don't know what to do. Well, first things first, you've got to understand what the problem is spiritually, okay? You've got to understand the problem spiritually. The spiritual issue has to do with the hardening of the heart. Whenever a marriage ends, it is always because one or both persons have hardened their heart toward God and then toward one another. When people harden their hearts, it becomes virtually impossible to change their minds without a miracle from the Lord. What does the hardening of the heart mean? Well, one of the most important examples from the Old Testament gives us a picture of what the hardening of the heart looks like, um, and that's Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, in Exodus chapter 7. In Exodus chapter 7, verses 1 and 2, the Lord instructed Moses uh, and Aaron to go and demand that Pharaoh, king of Egypt, release the Israelite population from slavery. However, in Exodus chapter 7, verses 3 to 4, the Lord prepared Moses and Aaron for Pharaoh's response. This is what he said. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my miraculous signs and wonders in Egypt, he will not listen to you. The hardening of the heart is an ancient Hebrew expression meaning someone who is stubborn, obstinate, hard-headed, unyielding, immovable, resistant, difficult, rough, tough, tough, and not persuadable. Pharaoh embodied all these traits in his dealings with Moses and Aaron. Now, in Pharaoh's case, 
God hardened Pharaoh's heart so that God might display his surpassing sovereign power over the human king by delivering the enslaved people of God from bondage despite the king's refusal to listen to Moses and Aaron's demands to let the people go. This is what I meant when I said that once a person hardens his or her heart, it is virtually impossible to change their minds without a miracle from God. Listen, people get mad, they get angry at one another. And as time goes by, that anger um, deteriorates and putrefies. It goes from anger to bitterness from really pain, Uh, it starts with pain and goes from pain to anger, from anger to bitterness, and then from bitterness even to hatred, and even from hatred even to murder. You see, it's the the deterioration, not only the deterioration of the relationship, but the deterioration of the human heart. The spiraling downward into a hardening of the heart. When married people harden their hearts toward God, it tends to surface in the hardening of their hearts in the marriage relationship. Marriage is the second closest relationship in a person's life, second to their relationship with God. So whatever a person's relationship is like with the Lord, will eventually come out in the marriage relationship. I mean, if you want to know why, Christians, you want to know why these things happen and why things go wrong, well, here you have it. This is precisely what happened in the relationship of our first parents, Adam and Eve, in Genesis chapter 3. Their relationship forever changed because their relationship to God changed because of their sin. Their relationship was was innocent and it was perfect before they disobeyed. After they disobeyed, nothing was ever the same. Nothing was ever quite the same again. And nothing has ever been the same since. I mean, if you want the theological reason why people can't get along in the first place, because at some point you got to just stop and ask that question, why can't people just get along in the first place? It's not as though it's beyond a person's power to decide to change their mind and get along better, but people often just won't do it. <laughs> you know, I think about this on the grand scale in the moment, uh, and I know you think about it with me. You know, we're going through witnessing this horrific, you know, uh, Israel-Hamas war. Well, you know, there would, the war would stop if, on the one hand, one side would stop hating and seeking the destruction of the other side, and the other side would stop hating and just seeking destruction. Of, and if people would stop shooting at one another and killing one another and murdering all the babies in the process. Now that sounds simple. <laughs> so why don't they do it? Well, you have to go all the way back to Adam in Genesis chapter 3 for the real explanation, why? I mean, it would be the same question asked of Cain in Genesis chapter 4, the very first two offspring from Adam and Eve. What happens? In the very first family, murder takes place. Cain kills Abel. And you remember what happened in that? In Genesis chapter 4, God came to Cain before he did what he did. And the Lord appealed to Cain not to do what Cain was going to do. Cain wouldn't listen. He did it anyway. You know, (laughs) so 
So your, your relationship, we're talking here, your marriage relationship would be better, you know, if there were some things you would just stop doing, that they would just stop doing. That's called repentance otherwise. Uh, just, there's some things you just ought to stop saying to your spouse. There's just some things you ought to stop. Just because you can say it doesn't mean you should say it. Now, this goes for all of us, okay? Um, you know, there's some things, you know, there's some things, you know, if, if you stop doing them, then stuff would stop blowing up in the relationship. And by the way, there are some things you could say that would help the relationship tremendously, but then you won't say them. Don't answer this question aloud <laughs> that I'm about to ask. When was the last time you looked your spouse in the eye and said, I love you and mean it? Don't answer aloud. Don't answer me. I ain't your judge. The judge, your judge already knows the answer. And your judge may be asking you that question. <laughs> I'm just a mouthpiece. I mean, just, you know, I mean, things that are within humans' ability to do, but we won't do. Why won't we do it? <laughs> because of sin within us, sin that began with Adam. By the way, remember what we learned from Genesis, from the book of Genesis and from the book of Romans also and from the entirety of the Old Testament and New Testament. Remember the answer to the question, how many sins does it take to become a sinner? Zero. We were born in sin and shapen in iniquity according to David in the Psalms. Whenever you and I committed our first sins, we only proved that we were already born sinners. We were born sinful in Adam because of Adam. And the only remedy for the issue is the second Adam, Jesus. The only one who can deliver us from the effects of the first Adam is the second Adam, Jesus. Romans chapter 5. So in Genesis chapter 3, their relationship, Adam and Eve, their marriage is forever changed because of their sin. As a result of their sin, they would experience perpetual challenge and conflict in their relationship. This is not what God originally wanted for them, but this is what they brought into humanity by their sin. When a man hardens his heart against his wife or a woman hardens her heart against her husband, they cause eventual detriment to their marriage relationship. Again, Jesus said, because of the hardness of your hearts. They refuse to trust. They refuse to listen. They refuse to care. They refuse to love. They refuse to forgive. They refuse to ask forgiveness. When's the last time you asked your spouse to forgive you for something you did or something you said or something you didn't do? They refuse to ask for forgiveness. They refuse to be humble. They refuse to reconcile. They refuse to work together. They refuse to come to the Lord in repentance for their sins. They refuse to stay together. They refuse to stay married. Mm. Proverbs chapter 28, verse 14 says this. Excuse me. Blessed is the one who always fears the Lord. But whoever hardens their heart will fall into calamity. Many marriages, many marriage relationships fall into calamity because of the hardening of their hearts. Now, let me move on, saints. 
Um, we, we also we should also notice that Jesus included the Pharisees in his spiritual assessment of Israel when he answered this. He said, "It was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you this law." Jesus did not say their hearts were hard back in the day. No, he said your hearts were hard. He pointed the finger at his adversaries who were questioning him in that moment because their hearts were indeed hard toward God, although they didn't see themselves in this manner as we mentioned earlier. Oh, hold on. So, simple question. Again, don't answer aloud. What is the condition of your heart before the Lord right now? And what is the attitude of your heart toward your spouse if you're married? Jesus knew the true condition of their hearts, which was the same spiritually rotten condition of the hearts of their ancestors in Moses' time. Yeah. <clears throat> Bob Stein writes, and I quote him briefly, by adding your to his explanation, Jesus moves the discussion from the abstract hardness of the human heart to the sinful attitude manifested by the Pharisees in their discussion. They, their reply focused on what God permitted in such circumstances or in such instances due to sin rather than on what God's purpose and intention is in marriage, end quote. This is why the scripture in Psalm 95, verses 7 and 8 says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. And in Hebrews chapter 3, verses 7 and 8, so as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. As you listen to the word of God today, my friends, do not harden your hearts against the Lord, nor against one another. In Christian marriage, it's holiness and humility, not hard-heartedness, that causes the relationship to succeed. And the example of humility needs to begin with husbands, especially since the scripture teaches that the husband is the head of the wife. According to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3, 1 Corinthians 11.3 says this, I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman or wife is the man, and the head of Christ is God. Hmm. Now, if we don't have any problem with God being the head of Christ and Christ being the head of every man, then neither should we have a problem with the husband being the head of the wife since that's what God's word says should be. But now recognize, as we've already tried, pointed out from scripture and from history, that men should never abuse nor take advantage of the position of leadership and authority that God has given in a marriage, in a home, and in a family. And if we do, God will punish us for it. There are many a men who found themselves on their sickbed with that woman who he beat up for years and years, looking over his sick, scarred, shriveled up body before he dies. God will not be mocked. Brothers, if we mistreat our wives, God will deal with us. So as husbands, <clears throat> excuse me, we must humble ourselves under the lordship of Christ 
As James says, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. We must humble ourselves under the lordship of Christ so that we can embody the kind of headship that glorifies God and honors our wives. God calls Christian husbands to set a good, a good biblical example of humility before the Lord for our wives, our children, and our families. And wives also must practice humility before the Lord in relation to husbands. Nothing is more spiritually corrosive to a marriage and family than sinful pride. On the part of husbands, wives, children, or anybody else for that matter. Nothing is more corrosive to relationships than sinful pride. Now, I know this is not popular in today's world and in some parts of today's church, but we must obey the word of God regardless. I mean, if you believe that the Bible is indeed the divinely inspired word of God, then you're going to obey it. We're going to obey it. We're going to obey God and obey God's word rather than men, as Peter and John said in Acts chapter 4. We'd rather obey God than man. And we certainly rather obey God than a godless culture that we find ourselves in the middle of. <clears throat> By the way, as Christians who are seeking to honor the Lord, follow the Lord Jesus, and, and learn and follow and obey God's word, listen, there is nothing to be ashamed of. We're not going to hell. But a whole lot of people who refuse to believe are if they don't repent. Now, if you're a Christian trying to walk with the Lord, what do you have to be ashamed of for that? God will reward you in this life and in the life to come far beyond anything that you could ever imagine or even quantify of this world's goods. So we must obey God's word regardless. Husbands and wives, we must repent of any hardness of heart toward one another in our marriages. Christ-like love with loyalty Humility and kindness, sensitivity and tenderness, compassion and care, listening and learning, and patience along with perseverance can overcome every challenge in marriage and family. That love we're talking about here, it's a loyal love. It's a love that hangs in there regardless to the ups and the downs and the harsh, sometimes harsh realities that happen in marriage and in family. And listen, saints, let me tell you this. Marriage is one of the greatest classrooms for Christian discipleship. You're going to grow. You're going to grow as a Christian in marriage. And marriage, we said at the beginning, marriage will test you to the core because it will expose who you are from within more than anything else will. We need to learn to practice the fruit of the Spirit in our marriages and put away the acts of the sinful flesh as outlined for us in Galatians chapter 5. Remember that? Well, you know, the acts of the sinful flesh are, and he outlines a list of, a laundry list of things. And then, but then by contrast, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control. Let us receive God's word with open minds and not obstinate minds. Let us receive God's word in a way that strengthens our marriage relationships and does not sever our marriage relationships. Let us remember that God ultimately calls for our marriages to reflect the marriage between Christ and his bride, the church. 
More to come, saints. But let me leave us on this. You see, that's what makes this so important, what I just said. Marriage, Christian marriage, is to be a reflection of the relationship between Christ and his church. Ephesians chapter 5. We'll come to it, we'll get to it. So, it's not just about the love between two human individuals, a man and a woman. It's not just about the physical attraction. It's not just about all of the things that, well, in this world and in our society that we like to highlight and emphasize, far above and beyond and far deeper than all of those things is the theological reason behind marriage in the first place. Marriage is to be a picture, a reflection of Christ's relationship to his church. Well, then also, yes, marriage then is a reflection of what's on the inside of the two people individually, yes. Well, and as disciples, we're to be walking with Christ because we are part of his church. So as Christians, we want our marriages to faithfully reflect Christ and his bride, the church. Therein lies the reward. Therein lies the rewards eternal. Now, listen, let me tell you before I stop. If you are a divorcee, or whatever the case may be, have been. If you have repented and believed the gospel, then you are a part of Christ's bride, the church, even if you happen to no longer be married to a human person. And Jesus is for you what no human being could ever have been anyhow. And that's one lesson that God wants you to take away from whatever went wrong. People fail. Why? Because people are sinners. That's why. All that happened, who did what, who was responsible for all of that, I understand that, I understand that, but listen, <laughs> it all happened because people are sinful. And the only remedy for our sinfulness is Jesus. And you know something? People will fail. People will fail you. Not only that, you know what? Let me, let me, let me be honest. Not only have people failed me, you know what? I failed some people in my life also. It goes both ways. God doesn't love you any less because you're no longer married. God loves you the same as he always did, and he always will. And just because things turned out the way they turned out, you can be sure of this. Every promise that God has made will turn out the way God said it would. Even if your promises at the altar didn't turn out the way they were supposed to, God's promises in his word will turn out the way he said. And you can trust him above all else. And he, listen to me, he will fill the void left by someone else. You might be a widow or a widower. Ultimately, we learn that no one can fill the void but the Lord. And no one can fill the void in a way that the Lord can fill the void. Let him do it. Let him do it. Let him do it. Why? Because it was always in his will for 
you to let him fill your soul anyhow, married or not. Your spouse is not your savior. They're your spouse. Only Jesus is your savior. And they can't feel what only Jesus can feel. This is the reason why many Christians in marriage fail. You, you can't, that person you're married to can't replace Jesus. And if you do that, you're treating them like an idol. And things are bound to fall apart. Because no one can take the place of Jesus. And we have to remember that. Let's be reminded of it. By the way, this is not only true for spouses, you know. This is also true for children. We don't worship those kids. <laughs> if you do, they'll remind you why they're not to be worshipped. <laughs> and so will that spouse. You know what I mean? And anybody else that you put in the place of God, you see what I mean? Listen, I, we got a lot to go through here. It's deep and it's heavy. I understand that. I need you. Well, not me. God wants you to stick with it. Stay with me now. This is a tough journey for some of you, I know. Stay with the Lord. Keep, let's keep following Jesus, even through the deep water. We're neck deep in some stuff now. But keep following the Lord. He's going to bring us out. He's going to bring you out. That's what he promised in Psalm 23. David said it this way. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, or even though I walk through the darkest valley, I don't walk alone. I'm not going through this alone. You are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. So let God's word be and become your comfort as we walk through these deep waters together. And I'm going to try to cover everything that I can, but I know by the time I come to the end of this, this episode, I will not have covered everything there is to cover. But you need to understand, let's get the biblical foundation right, and then everything else, the Lord will bring it together in our understanding. Amen? Let us pray. Father in heaven, Thank you for every one of us whom you have graciously called into your presence on this day and into your presence in this church for worship and to hear and to receive your word and to be discipled by the truth and the teaching of your word. Thank you for your mercy to us, Father. Thank you for your mercy. There are people wandering all over the place, all over the world, wishing they could hear a word from you. We thank you, O oh God, that you have been so gracious to us, and we pray you'll help us to be good stewards of the truth that we learn here in the Gospel of Mark. There are many truths that we learn. Lord, help us to to apply to our hearts and our souls what we have heard today and apply to our lives with wisdom from you, wisdom, the wisdom of your Holy Spirit, helping us to understand not only what we've been through and where we've been and what we've dealt with and what we've survived and experienced, but also who Jesus is in the middle of all this, and who you have called us to be now and in the future, Lord. I, I just pray that you'll not, don't allow the devil to scramble the signals and mess up our thinking in these things, but Father, help us, give us wisdom to understand and to put all of this together, the spiritual truth together in a way that brings healing, that brings spiritual healthiness, that brings wholeness, spiritual wholeness, and above all, holiness. Now, Father, for anyone under the sound of my voice 
who is not married to Christ, who is not a part of the bride, who, have, who has not repented and believed the gospel of Jesus and is a born-again believer in Christ Jesus. For anybody who has not repented and believed, we pray now for their salvation. We pray, O oh God, for the convicting power of the Holy Spirit to bring men, women, boys, and girls to faith in Jesus. For we know that your word says, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. So we pray for the salvation of sinners. And Father, we pray for the strengthening of the saints. In the mighty name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.